Welcome back to another episode of the Cellar Door Society with Jake, James, and Ash. We had a lot of fun recording this one, and we hope you guys have a lot of fun listening. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes and content, and we hope you visit us online at thecellardoorsociety.com. This is Jake signing off. Do you guys believe in ghosts? Obviously, we wouldn't have started this podcast together if we didn't. That's the answer I was looking for. (laughs) Did you ever have an experience with one? Um. Okay, so yeah, I'll give you two short stories if I may, if I may. Please, you um, may. One, I was in my aunt's house on my dad's side in a small town in Alabama, and the story goes that some painter... Sounds like the start of a Waylon <coughs> Jennings song. Small town in Alabama? I mean, yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Um, anyway, so this painter, like, theoretically, what I've been told, there's conflicting stories, but... This is the most known. Painter fell off the barn while doing some work, hit the gravel, lights out, right? But, uh, you know, now he haunts the grounds residually. He'll come in the back door, like you'll hear the screen door open. He'll walk in. And this is why I think it was the owner of the house, because why would a hired painter walk into someone else's house? Anyway, but uh, either way, they'll walk in and down and down the hallway and turn into the bedroom and bada bing, bada boom, they're gone, right? Is that where we think they fell? It was from the past? No, I think they're coming home from work. Mm. You know, like, they don't quite know they're dead. They just, you know, probably, like, wake Same up routine. on the ground, and they're like, oh, well, sure. go inside. I don't know what happened. Go lay down. And, uh, yeah, and then, so, the house I grew up in, me and my sister always believed it was very haunted. Right. Um, not very as in a negative way, just haunted in, a, in a, like, a, somebody liked to wander around. Never <coughs> saw anything, but we heard lots of noises. Uh, my sister claimed she saw eyes out of her window one night, but, like, yeah, I don't know. That's her story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> but, yeah, we called him Bill. Name? Never, adju- never objected to it in any way that we could find, so, you know, that's the name that we gave it. And uh, it would uh, he would walk, like middle of the night and then like sometimes in the afternoon from one end of the house to the end of the original house which makes me think again residual haunting doesn't realize there's another part of the house that you can go into um and only one time we think it scared somebody this person that was staying on our couch uh apparently bill didn't like and Mm -hmm. like screams middle of the night out the door door slammed never saw the person again never came back so we don't really know what happened or how what worked there but uh we didn't really like the person so they were gone gone oh yeah dude like cl- well, two claps like, out you the door you couldn't call them anymore and be like like i said we didn't really like them so okay you know, like, so, geez i wonder right. if uh that ghost is looking out for you yeah that's what <laughs> i like to think i mean uh bill ran him out of your life man. it was always a always like a pleasant feeling there was never any negativity towards it just one room in our house one room always had this just like vibe in it and it's like my sister felt it (coughs) my mom and dad were pretty like clueless when it came to like otherworldly things like that and so but we both felt it and so we'd always swap rooms like every few years we'd be like no i'm getting out you're going in you know your turn for yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) i like it yeah yeah ashley i feel like i have a lot of like little things that just don't really make sense in my mind that I would like to attribute to to the paranormal. The one that scared me the most was I started having, I don't know, just a bad feeling about a particular room in my basement and I would avoid going there, especially at night. It was where the, it was the laundry room. Mm. 
And always the laundry room. Why is it always the laundry I don't, room? I don't know. Is it the water? Is it like what? I don't Maybe know. it's the electricity. The, <coughs> the yeah, like two forty volts for the for the washer. Did you also say water is supposed to be a especially running water is supposed to be a uh, an easy medium for that sort of energy to come through? I'm going to talk on that in the future. Ooh. Interesting. Anyway, but yeah, I started like I just really felt like I was being watched especially as I was going up the stairs. And then I would have dreams that something was watching me going up the stairs. Ooh, that's and that spooky. was like really unsettling because the dream and reality would line up pretty well. Like the same thing happened in my dream that happened as I was walking up the stairs. Right, right. So that was pretty spooky. And then one night I woke up and just the energy in my room felt off. Like I was just immediately terrified. I could tell I wasn't alone. It just... Everything was heavy and cold and, like, gross feeling. Right, right. Just, I tried to pretend like it wasn't happening, but it didn't go away. I opened up my eyes and I saw a dark figure standing by my closet. And I thought, I'm just going crazy. It's fine. I rubbed my eyes and I looked again and I was like, oh, shit. And my dog woke (laughs) up and my dog looked directly at the same thing that I was looking at. And all of his hackles rose up on his back and he growled and barked at it. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, Fuck me. Um, my yeah, mom the next terrifying. day was like, what was going on? Like, why was your dog barking? So I know it wasn't just like a dream. Right. So that happened. And I don't know. That's interesting. I had an experience not too different, it sounds like, from yours. When I was younger, I lived in Arizona. And I remember I had a friend sp- spending the night stayed up way too late playing Pokemon Stadium on the N64, <laughs> so that was a good time. I and loved the N64. Such oh, a good it console. It was the best I mean, console. Yeah, for real. It was, uh, there's something to be said, too, about how satisfying it was to put a game in it. Just oh my that, god, like, yes. Uh, you kind of, like, blew it yeah, out first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Clicked it in. Yeah. Mm. So, I let him sleep in my bed, and I was going to sleep on the floor. What a good, what a good well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so I'm sleeping on the floor, and I remember I was kind of in that sweet spot where you're not quite asleep, but not also like 100% awake. And I kind of felt the same, like I wasn't alone feeling. Now, my dad was a prankster, so I just assumed it was my dad pulling my leg. And I turned and I looked, and in my doorway to my bedroom was like a black mass. And uh, we had, at the time, we would keep a light on in the kitchen. And I could see the kitchen light, but I could see that there was, like, a mass in front of it that light was not passing through. Super scary. Didn't feel right. Um, I remember pulling the blankets above my head and just hoping I would go to sleep. And eventually I woke up, kind of asked my parents about it. My dad just figured I was dreaming, kind of made me dismiss it. And then it wasn't until probably four or five years later uh, we had moved back to the midwest and i remember i was sleeping at the time i had this book of planets and there were like these huge pages oh i love those books. you know what i'm talking about (laughs) the ones that were like three feet tall and you're just that's exactly what it was you know a he-man opening them right yeah yeah. so i had one of those and i used it as like a tent and i was like sleeping underneath it falling asleep reading about planets and i remember feeling that same feeling like i woke up And at this time, my brother was in the same room. So I threw my book down, hoping it would wake my brother up. Brother's passed out, of course. Just 
just snooze him. <laughs> Looked at the doorway thinking I would see it. It wasn't there. Started feeling like a little bit of relief. And then I saw it was standing at the like the foot of my bed. And it freaked me out so much. Um, same deal. I like pulled the covers over my head. Waited till I fell asleep. Then asked my dad about it in the morning. He just kind of told me I was dreaming again, right? But then, like, ever since then, I was like, there's something there's something creepy out here. Never really saw it again. I did have another ghost experience, but it was, like, way more pleasant. I was sledding in my front yard with, like, neighborhood kids. Like, a total Norman Rockwell scene, right? <laughs> like, four kids sledding, front yard, dads are talking. I just finished a sledding run, and I looked up, and we lived on a dead end. We had, like, a street light. And it was snowing pretty good, and I was staring at the streetlight, and for like half a second, all the snow stopped. Like a person was standing there, and then it just like went away. And I didn't feel like anything, I felt nothing about it. It felt so normal, it just felt like a guy watching people sledding and stuff. Um, no one else noticed it, and that, that was probably the two experiences I have. Now, James, you said briefly before the podcast that... Uh, you might actually have a story that kind of relates to ghosts and things like that, or a topic. I do, yeah. So, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the stone tape theory. And let's say I haven't heard of it. Oh, we're going to get into it. Wonderful. I'm not even going to warrant that question right now, because I just told you Ignore title, everything so. I said. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so stone tape theory, right? You hear it thrown around in Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, various different blogs and paranormal investigators, right? And the general idea out there is that this is where energies are stored into porous objects, wood, rocks, concrete, what have you, right? But we're going to go a little deeper into that. And uh, the Wikipedia definition is the speculation that ghosts and hauntings are analogous to tape recordings and that mental impressions during emotional or traumatic events can be projected in the form of energy and recorded. Interesting. Onto rocks and other items and replayed. Sorry, I, I uh, had a little throat problem there. Under certain conditions. Anyway, um, right. So it is pretty interesting, right? We all know things carry energy. We know physics exists. So, like, yes, things have atoms and particles and molecules constantly moving around inside them. On the outside, this, yeah. Is this like, have you seen Frozen 2? <laughs> I haven't seen Frozen 2. I've seen the first Not one. Not in a while. Because, um, like, Olaf is talking about how, like, the water has memories, and that's, like, a whole theme is, like, they get through stuff. So, like, was Frozen, like, bouncing yes. off this idea? Yes, 100%. 100%. And we'll go into that, because water kind of has its own subset. And that was really the interesting thing about researching this, is I thought it was going to be this one, like, boom, type it in here's this crazy amount of information. Nah. There's yeah. like three paragraphs on, quote, the stone tapes theory, right? The thing that blew me away when I was researching this is that the name stone tape theory came from a British television series in the 80s. Not even kidding you. BBC Two aired at 19, uh, or no, not the 80s, 70s, excuse me, in 1972. And it was the called show's name? Oh, the, the show's name was uh, called The Stone Tape And it was a television horror drama Written by Nigel Neal I would suppose how you say that And directed by Peter Sasby Premise is basically a team of paranormal investigators Move into an old Victorian mansion that's haunted They start doing tests and whatnot, And you know Seeing if the stones could act as a recording medium That's what they were trying to figure out Okay uh, See if these stones held information about the building and such um, and 
before this series, there was no mention of the stone tape theory. None. So, like, all the theories that people pull from for, like, explaining it is just pulled from multiple different facets of education. There's no actual stone tape theory. Now there is a modern age because we've created it. But it's essentially like you were talking about in a few episodes ago, the thought form. Mm. Right? We've created this thought form of the stone tape theory because it's just kind of took off into this thing. So, it's very interesting. Um, but there were a lot of mentions about it before this. So... This idea of moments in time being stored in porous objects has been around since the 19th century. Charles Babbage was one of the first people to mention a theory of this. In, in his treatise, the Ninth Bridgewater Treatise, uh, it says he speculated that spoken words leave permanent impressions in the air, even though they become aud inaudible after time. He suggested that it is due to the possible transfer of motion between particles. The second person should also be included in this, which is jo Joseph Rhodes Buchanan, and he's the one who actually coined the term uh, or the word psychometry. And what's psychometry, right? Uh, it means that you can gain accurate knowledge of an object's history by making physical contact with that object. We've also seen that in stories. Uh, you know, uh, mediums, right? They say they, they can touch things and see stuff and whatever. Not saying they can't, but like that's the, where that mediums, whole yeah. idea comes from is the psychometry idea. And both these guys we're in like 1830s, 1840s, right? So this is centuries before the stone tape was even made. But it wasn't called that, right? Um, Charles Babbage, it was technically natural theology what he was speaking about. Joseph Buchanan was talking about psychometry. But another aspect that really didn't squash this belief but has put a lot of criticism on it was the Society for Physical Research, which was also founded in the 19th century in the UK. This society was made up of great minds in math, science, psychology, and the early stages of parapsychology. These people had a large influence in the parapsychology world and the spiritualism movement, which we all know during the Victorian era, the 1930s and such, it was really big, really huge, running rampant in the world. They suggested place memory. Same concept, I'm not even kidding you. Place memory is the same concept, but it's more relating to what we call residual hauntings, right? So like somebody remembers this house because they had a traumatic event, so they go through in the same motions that they have been for however long. Kind of similar to like your first ghost story where this entity seems to be doing the same thing over and over again. Right, walking the length of the house, stopping, walking back, and disappearing. Exactly. And I found that really interesting that so often these things were comparable, right? You started with this natural theology idea of that words are carried on air. You moved into an idea of, oh my gosh, psychometry, that's the word I wanted, where like you can touch something and they can give you knowledge, you can't give things to it. And now you have place memory, which is, like I said, the apparitions and ghosts and things walking around like that. There is one other person that kind of had a play in all of this, and it was T.C. Lethbridge. He was an archaeologist turned paranormal researcher. He claimed the same things as the others, but just justified the idea of, quote, energy fields of an object. Which, like, again, you know, kind of the same idea. Everything has its own energy. It affects this and all of that. That's, that's a general history of how the stone tape theory is made up, right? That's the basis for it. The actual science behind the theory is made up of some crazy complex stuff. Okay. So we're talking quantum physics, third law of thermodynamics, quantum entanglement, and not to mention uh, just general physics of how like 
objects work, how many atoms they have, how many molecules, what chemical makeups they are. So, most claim that the third law of thermodynamics and quantum entanglement are the reasons why this works. There are also opinions out there that the actual molecular structure of some solids can hold energy within their being. Quartz is a good example of this. The Secret Language of the Stone, written by Don Robbins, states that the crystal lattice of minerals allows for reservoirs of energy to be stored within the crystal. This essentially creates a vortex of energy at the, at the, uh, at the center or at the heart of the crystal. That's diving deeper, and this book was written in 1988, right? So we've really expanded on that idea. We have more science. We know the molecular structures of things now. We can look inside of rocks. This guy believes, yeah, there's definitely space for energy to come from somewhere else and be stored within this. Another guy said it was stored within the electron cloud and not directly with, uh, like, inside with the molecules and in their structure. It was stored within the electronic cloud. Electron cloud, yeah, exactly. As com as compared to like it being in its actual like, oh fuck, what's the word? Um, it's the pattern that uh, the protons, I believe, f roll around the nucleus, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> this is uh, this was some crazy stuff to read, so. Forgive me for all the science listeners out there who can explain this way better than I could. Maybe we'll get one of you on the show to uh, help explain this a little bit yeah. more in depth eventually. Yeah, that would be really nice. If uh, you feel like you fit this description, go over to the website, thecellardoorsociety.com, click on contact us and shoot us an email and we'd love to get in touch with you. James. I'd love to learn some things, for sure. Okay, so that's the beginning. That's part A. I have three more parts to go through. So sorry. Um, the third law of thermodynamics is the other thing that people often mention. And I'm going to read you this definition, and I'm sorry. The third law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a system approaches a constant value as the temperature approaches absolute zero. The entropy of a system at absolute zero is typically zero, and in all cases is determined only by the number of different ground states it has. All right, I'm going to break that down a little bit only because I did way too much reading on this. So entropy is basically just the chaos from energy. It's the leftover energy uh, that doesn't get used or doesn't get spent. It's just created and left as chaos is what most definitions call it. And so basically it's saying like a good example of this is refrigerators and air conditioners. These appliances cool down the enclosed space by removing heat uh, but they never reach absolute zero temperature, right? Because there's constantly that chaos, that entropy that's running. So there's always going to be heat. There's always going to be a leak somewhere. And so what people, why they, how they kind of mangle that definition to support the stone theory is that there's always this bit of energy left over, right? There's always entropy. Nothing can reach absolute zero, if I remember my readings right. And so they swear, like, when something happens or there's this huge emotional, like, reaction, that energy has to go somewhere, and so it's going to go into the next porous object, which is typically quartz, limestone, some type of porous rock. Um, another good example of this is liquid nitrogen. Often used to instantaneously freeze foods or medical supplies, it offers an idea of how difficult it is to extract heat as the temperature lowers. Even though it has a very low temperature, it still isn't. An absolute zero. So even liquid nitrogen, which can make 
human flesh brittle to the point of breaking like glass, it's not, uh, you know, it's not cold enough to be absolute zero. So there's that idea. And the third thing is quantum entanglement. All right, this one is a lot to cover, right? What is it? Essentially, I would have to give it a whole physics lesson on just what the quantum part even meant, including the entanglement. Uh, but I'll give a definition that I thought kind of encompassed it well that I found. Quantum entanglement is the phenomena that occurs when a group of particles are generated, interact, or share spatial proximity in such a way that the quantum state of each particle of the group cannot be described independently of the state of the others, including when the particles are separated by large distance. Yep. So quantum entanglement, basically, like you have this apparition, you have this thing that has all this energy and particles. It is entangled with our world and our particles and our fields and so there's no way for it to escape because it's constantly entangled that's how i interpret it to be related back to the stone tape theory right not trying to interpret quantum physics right now i have a headache just reading the definitions (laughs) (laughs) um so that's like that's the general overall view of like how this all came about right it started as this idea of words and wind and got all the way down into where we're talking about different molecules and particles being separated and brought back together. All because of a British television series called the Stone Tape Theory. Like, seriously, that's how we got that name. Otherwise, it would be known as psychometry or quantum physics. Or uh, one of them actually was a philosophy, like the natural theology that's technically a philosophy paper. So it's really interesting to see the different blends of academia to create this genuine thought form. You know, I've been seeing like more and more um, like people in the spiritual realm are saying like, hey, these things are being able to be backed up with um, physics, like right. uh, manifestation. And I've seen things where people will put different crystals in like a cup of water and then freeze them. And then the energetic properties of the crystals will create like different formations in the ice. In the ice, yeah. I don't know if I've never tried that. That could be like I don't know, just it sounds really cool. The yeah, they've yeah. done a lot of cool uh, you can actually Google water emotions frozen in water or something like that. But yeah, this like photographer spent time photographing the way ice looked different when he was like talking to to the the glass of water with love versus yelling at it versus like talking to it when he was sad. And he found that the patterns were able... You were able to find discernible differences Hmm. in the water as these emotions were going through. Um, That's really interesting. It is interesting, yeah. And I uh, I agree with Ashley. I have found that the more you dive into the occult, the beliefs that seem to be sticking around or, or being taken as more... I guess you could say concrete seem to be dabbling or touching around quantum physics and mechanics. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, chaos magic has a lot of entanglement of its own to quantum physics, um, taking concepts from one and then being able to tie them back to, you know, what the magician is attempting to do upon reality. Um, So I find it really interesting to see that we are going in this way of... Not necessarily using science to completely discredit the things that we are doing or participating in the spiritual, but seeing kind of like a marriage between the two where you're seeing 
people who have believed one thing are now having that reinforced by science, or people who were maybe in the area of doubting it all can now say, well, hey, now science is backing this up. Maybe there's something there for me. Um, That's very interesting, James. Right. And, you know, ultimately, like, my conclusion for it was that uh, saying or basing, like, things on the saying, like, oh, this is happening because of the stone tape theory. Like, don't say that anymore. Just don't. <laughs> like, it, let, we have the research. Like you guys were saying, we have the science now. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, this is probably something physics-related. Like, you don't have to understand it, but don't stand there and It seems say like they were using the you know? stone tape theory as, like, a catch-all for multiple different kinds of... And it is, but it's such a misnomer at this point, right? Like, because no one's ever, like, at least in my time, and I'm a very amateur, but, like, no one's ever explained that, right? They've always just been like, oh, this is what it means. And it's like, well, it does, but also it doesn't, right? Um, I find that stuff more interesting and more believable when you can get into, like, the actual reasons why it's happening like the quantum physics instead of just being like oh it's this theory (laughs) right right exactly and personally i definitely think things have energies like we all know things have atoms and they move and all this and um another thing that's often portrayed in ghost stories and ghost shows is uh matter cannot be destroyed nor created right where so where does it go and theoretically our bodies are made up of a lot of electricity so where does that electricity go like Great questions. I would like to say um, to those who don't believe that maybe we exist after we pass on or that energy goes somewhere else. Like if you think of a loved one who's passed over, you can still elicit within yourself very real emotions and have very real feelings about that. And so I, I think that goes to show even though the physical placeholders in here that the stuff of who that person was will live on forever within memories. And I think when you interact with that, you bring it into your own world and you kind of reinforce that connection really cool uh, yeah but I thought that fit pretty well so uh. yeah no I mean I, I've, I've heard the term thrown around and like you said in shows like ghost adventures and things like that but I've never really done a deep dive so I'll definitely have to check out some more of it myself it's very interesting um, there are several books that I uh, from the 1800s from those uh, people I mentioned that generally sounded pretty interesting because it while it touched on those things it wasn't directly related to the stone tape theory you know it was more on just theories in general you mm. know uh, pretty cool stuff pretty cool stuff though yeah it sounds really interesting I'm talking myself about something that I've been passionate about I guess since I first started researching or getting involved in um, anything occult-like in nature, and that is, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about astral projection. Um, It's a huge topic, so we're really just going to go into uh, kind of a scratching of the surface. Um, Hopefully, it's interesting enough for folks to look into it on their own. It's definitely not a completely in-depth we only have so much time so uh it's it's definitely something to kind of whet the appetite and we'll take it from there but it's uh, something i'm excited about i've spent some time attempting it myself and um, i'm excited to share it with you guys so let's get going okay so astral projection uh what is it so astral projection also known as astral travel it can be called soul travel it can be called uh, all sorts of different things it's essentially the act of a conscious or a intentional out-of-body experience 
but um, <laughs> astral projection, astral travel, soul travel. Um, it's called a couple different things, and I was able to find just a few different areas in the world where we see examples of this or within their own religions and cultures that they talk about this or give credit to it. The term itself, astral projection, is relatively newer. It was coined and promoted by 19th century theosophists. Um, theosophists. Theosophists. Yeah, that Theo is a... Uh, Wait, we one more time for me. Theosophists. Theosophists. Yes. Um, All right. That's, that's, a, that's a word. We'll probably talk about them <laughs> on their own. They have a very interesting story, but uh, we won't get sidetracked on them too much. So that term itself, astral travel, relatively new. The, the general idea has been around for a while. So starting with ancient Egypt, we saw some evidence of this in Egyptian teachings. So they called the soul, I'm going to probably mispronounce 80% of this, so we're really doing our best. But they would call it Ba, and they believed that it had the ability to hover outside the physical body via the ka or the subtle body. And this term subtle body is something um, we see throughout all of these groups that have um, this belief that people, whether it's certain people or everyone, can leave their body and travel using your soul. The idea is this subtle body is a a body outside of your physical body, right? So it could be called a body of energy, a body of light, things like that. Um, there are some belief systems that believe there's a body of emotion, a body of um, intellect, and a body of energy. Some of them just believe it's energy. Whatever your belief structure is, um, the subtle body is basically what you are moving outside of your physical self. We also see in the Amazon, there is a tribe called the Waiwai. They have uh, medicine men called the Yaksomo, and they believed they had the ability to perform a soul flight. Same deal, um, their soul is leaving their body to uh, attempt to conversate with, it could be spirits, um, they refer to them as cosmological beings, whether that be the moon or the brother of the moon. They could be doing this to get information about an illness, about maybe the tribe members and some assistance with healing them. They were cited to also get the names of newborns this way by asking the spirits. Um, and then another one I found was an insistence on using this method to try and get a bigger bounty when it came to hunting. So they would ask certain spirits um, to be bountiful to the tribe and maybe help provide an additional deer or whatever. Hmm. I'm just in the Amazon. Interesting. And then we're going to scoot over to another part of the world, the Inuits. Um, there were some Inuit groups. They had shamans um, and only individuals, so they didn't believe everyone could do this, just these individual shamans. They were called Angakuk. They were said to be able to travel to mythological remote places. Typically that would be something that was culturally significant to the tribe. So maybe it would be a, a large cave, a mountain, things like that. Something that would be important to the group. They believed that these shamans would travel there with their soul, have conversations with spirits or entities, and then they would report that information back to the community. Uh, also reported to ask for help with hunting or heal a sick person. And that was kind of a thread I started seeing as I kept going through more of these groups is oftentimes the individuals who could um, perform this astral or this soul travel would do so in hopes of bringing information back to their tribes or their communities. So it wasn't 
I'm sure potentially folks were using it for more of self-centered means, but by and large, a lot of the evidence I found tended to be pointed more towards helping your neighbor out or, uh, you know, the, the birth of a new child that would be really significant to the tribe, right? So finding a name that fit, like, this really momentous, significant moment. I wonder, um, I wonder if that's part of how it works. You know, maybe maybe astral, pro- I mean, I don't know you about, you're probably going to talk about this, but maybe astral projection is more of a meant to be a positive thing in the universe. You know, it's not meant to be a, a self-centered thing. Yeah, I think I think intention plays a big role with not only astral travel, but I think a lot of working with anything spiritually. Astral travel, they, they generally recommend, if you were going to attempt this, to have, have a destination in mind, right? Um, whether that be visiting with somebody or seeing something, and I could even be seeing yourself. But I think... The idea of like, hey, I'm going to use this to help someone else out. It's hard to argue that that would be a bad thing, right? right? And I think generally in life when your intention is good, then generally good things happen. So I think Mm -hmm. something as powerful and momentous as this act of leaving your body consciously, I would think saving it for these big moments and, and feeling really proud about being able to do this. That would that would totally make sense to me. We also see evidence, or at least talking about uh, leaving your soul in Hindu, Japanese, and Taoist uh, belief structures and cultures. So it's kind of all over the place. It can be from more civilized uh, structures to kind of more tribal, community-driven you know, smaller groups, they all seem to have these dabblings, I guess you could say, with the idea of leaving your body with your soul, having a experience, and then bringing that information back. It seems to be not just isolated to some of the new Western schools of thought. So it was interesting to see that it was just kind of all over the place. I do, though, want to put a spotlight specifically on astral projection and its mention in Christianity. I was raised to be Christian myself, or I was raised in a Christian household, so, uh, you know, this was never talked about, obviously. Right. So anytime I get a chance to then tie it back, things like in the occult to tie it back to Christianity, I always get a little excited about that. (laughs) I've got two Bible verses here. First one, Revelation 4, 1, 2. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So, voice says, hey, come up here, and I'll show you what what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit. Kind of, you could read this, right, Mm -hmm. and interpret it as, um, hey, I'm being beckoned to go to heaven, which in theory would be, you know, it's his place. Somewhere else. Right, somewhere else. Call it another dimension. You could call it a different plane of existence, whatever you want. And he says, at once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now he's in heaven, and he says he's staying, he's in the spirit. Spirit and soul, often synonymous, right, Mm -hmm. to mean the same thing. So I guess I initially interpret this as, hey, I am in the spirit. I'm in a form that is not my body. It is not myself. It is the spirit. 
I'm standing in heaven. I am interacting with what I believe to be my God. Kind of sounds like an astral or a soul travel to me. Um, there is another one here, and it's going to kind of tie into some of the m more current concepts that we hear. I always butcher um, biblical chapter names, so here we go. Here. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 12, verses 6 and 7. Ecclesiastes. There we go. Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. It goes as follows. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Specifically, the silver cord. So the silver cord is this concept of a silver cord that tethers your astral form back to your body. Of experiences that you can read of people reporting when they astral projected, a lot of them will refer to this small, thin silver cord that seems to come from their solar plexus that goes back to their body. We have mentioned here, before the silver cord is severed, typically they'll also refer to severing of the silver cord can be symbolic of dying. So that's right. your soul leaving your body permanently. It's not going to come back. So I, I found it a little, be, a little interesting to be mentioned here again. And there were some other verses as well, but I didn't want to go down, um, you know, 20 minutes of, of reading Bible verse, <laughs> mainly for my own, my own benefit or, or lack thereof. <laughs> so I found that to be interesting as well, because, again, uh, growing up in a Christian household, not something we ever talked about, and I'm sure just... As I've grown and learned some of these concepts, it's easier for me to make these connections or to make my own um, inferences on what I believe that to be the case. Um, so then we, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, that's kind of me wrapping up, I suppose, the different religions and different groups of people talking about them. There is a lot of evidence in these in a ton of different uh, groups. Um, but again, the subject's so big, I didn't want to get too tied down on it. Right. So I guess what I want to drive home is this concept of leaving your body, traveling with your soul, whether that's in a body of light or a body of emotions, is found within many different belief structures, many different religions, and across the world, even as close as Christianity. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the myths of astral projection. So um, some of the common yes. myths I've, I've read. Yeah. Yes. Oftentimes when you start your research into this, you'll find people talking like you don't want to astral project because when you leave your body, you leave it open for a demon or some mm. bad energies to crawl into your body, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not the case. T typically, you would have to invite something to... In the occult, it's, right? it's known as invoking something, so that's right. to pull yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a uh, energy within yourself. And typically, you need an invitation to do that. If we're talking about like a spiritual attachment, whether that be negative or however you want to view that, um, again, generally there has to be some some more interaction. I think the idea is as soon as you leave it, there's like a line of people, like it's a restaurant <laughs> trying to get in. Um, that meat suit. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me try that out first. That mullet looks fun. Um, not the case. So again, if you leave, you're not going to be immediately possessed, and then your loved ones are like, "What the hell's wrong with James?" Um, well, they asked that anyway. Sure, but that's I mean, completely. That's I guess that is completely a totally different topic. reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get stuck in the astral world. Was another 
myths that I read online where uh, people saying, uh, don't do this, you can get stuck there. All right. So I know I brought this up again in another episode, but this again relates to the movie Soul. Just throw that out there. Uh, for our yeah, listeners out there, list. James is recommending you watch the movie Soul. It is pertaining to some of the content we have covered. Check it out. Report back. Let us know what you think about that. Another myth I read was uh, you can get hurt or harmed while you're in the astral world. I guess it's kind of like anything. It's like any experience you have. Uh, your takeaways with it are ultimately your takeaways. So if you go and do something and you have a negative time that was, you know, that's real. But uh, however you want to take it is ultimately how the experience is going to be for you. A lot of this seems to be your own internal mindscape that you're going to be interacting with. What does your own internal mind look like? And maybe the things that you're dealing with are just a reflection of things you need to deal with in your real life. Interesting. I, don't, I, have a, I wonder if, because you know how in the paranormal world you often see balls of light or figures like that moving at a distance or far away. It makes me wonder, are these just astral projections from another time that we're seeing during ours? Yeah, and that's kind of uh, something I, I was thinking about as I was putting all this together was like, are, are ghosts just astral bodies who are stuck in loops right. and we're just in the right spot at the right time to view this loop or we're open to seeing that and so because uh, we experience it. There is that whole theory of like moving on, right? Like some people aren't able to move on and what mm -hmm. if it's... One thing that really struck me was the silver cord idea because what if that silver cord, yeah, gets cut but then reattaches to something else? I don't know if that's possible, right? I don't know the theories. Have but. you astral projected? So I've had an experience that was, it, it was not an intentional projection, but it was a, a out-of-body experience that I was in control of. I'll have to share it off air. Um, <laughs> I've gotten close intentionally many times. Typically, I'll get as close to everything I'm seeing turns into this very pleasant shade of blue. And then almost always I'm snapped out of it by something. But I've listed a couple techniques that I've used, as well as there's a, a couple books I recommend. The, the main one being, it's called uh, Demystifying the Out-of-Body Experience. It's by this guy, uh, Luis Monero. He's down in Brazil. He's got a whole institute that is just focused on the out-of-body experience and being able to replicate it in a scientific setting. Uh, it was a fantastic read and it seems like the Institute's doing some cool things down there. The technique he uh, uses I call the bouncing technique. For all of these, the starting of it is pretty universal. So you want to find yourself in a very comfortable position, whether that's laying down or sitting in a chair. You also want to be in a place where you have some uninterrupted time, um, preferably for about a half hour or so. If you can help it, somewhere that's quiet, just some place very easy for you to relax. And you basically want to get into a state of relaxation. While you're in that state of relaxation, you want your mind as quiet and settled as possible. You kind of want to edge on that line of being completely asleep. So letting your, your body think it's asleep while keeping your mind awake. And quite honestly, that tends to be the hardest part of the journey. When I started out, a lot of times I would just go to sleep immediately. So playing around with time of day is really important. I find the later in the day it is, the more likely I'm just going to go back to sleep. Right 
Whereas the earlier in the morning, if I wake up, maybe I walk around a little bit and then go lay down on the couch and try, I found that to be much more successful for myself. The bouncing technique itself. So once you're in this state of relaxation, you want to send all of your focus and your attention to your feet to start. And then once you feel like all of your focus and attention is at your feet, you then want to focus on the top or above your head. And you want to send all of your attention, your focus there. And what you're looking for is you're looking for like a feeling of shifting sand within your body. You're looking for these very small sensations of something's moving. And as soon as you feel like you have it in a good spot at your head, you send it right back down to your feet. And so you keep doing this over and over again. And the idea is you're bouncing your attention, which is going to be your vehicle that you'll be using to travel with, down and up down and up and down and up and in theory it's kind of like shaking a soda can it's going to pop out of the can eventually so there there are some some people who have their own uh recountings of their experiences using that technique it's it's supposed to be one of the most explosive techniques people uh describe it as being flung from their body or shot out of their body like a cannon um when I've used this technique, I can't agree. It, it feels a little uh, chaotic when you really get it going. And I find that feeling for myself to be a little distracting. Hmm. Um, there's another one called the rocking technique. Again, you're going to get in that really relaxed state of mind, uh, preferably when you're laying down in the middle of a bed. And you want to imagine or visualize yourself turning over as if you were just going to turn over in the bed, right? So you're going to do that to the left, and then you're going to do that to the right. And you keep doing that, basically, left and right, left and right. And you want to basically slip out of your body, is the idea. Again, I have problems with that one because I'm always convinced I'm going to fall out of my bed. Um, so normally when I feel like I'm really starting to, to turn, I generally jump and then feel like I'm about to be halfway through falling. So the technique I use is uh, the rope technique. It's essentially imagining that there's a long rope that goes as far as your eye can see above your head. And you kind of visualize yourself while you're in this relaxed state of reaching up and grabbing the rope and then bringing your hand back down into your body until you can really feel like when you grab the rope that you really feel like you're feeling something. Then you grab your other hand and you just visualize yourself slowly climbing this rope until you climb out of yourself. And I found that one to be the most successful for myself. It feels the least, I guess, violent way of leaving. Um, yeah, I don't like to be shot out of anything. Right? <clears throat> yeah, no, yeah. fair enough, fair yeah. enough. And there are like a ton of uh, guided meditations you can listen to. Um, there's a, a lot of audio you can pull, put on. Some people say the solfeggio frequencies uh, they've had a lot of good luck with. So... Different, different methods. If you are somebody who has astral projected or you have experience with this or even tips, tricks, uh, or just stuff to share, please get in contact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Definitely won't be the last of us talking about astral projection. Now, Ashley, what do you have? Today I'm going to be talking about how the story of Jesus is just an astrological allegory for the sun passing through the zodiac each year. Love it. So I was finding that a lot of things in like Jesus's birth and just related to religion, Christianity in general, have a lot of similarities with what I know to be true in astrology. First to kind of start off with the like the 12 disciples can kind of be identified as the 12 zodiac signs. Mm. And this is seen in 
Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. I guess if you go and look at that, you can say, oh, this person's this sign. They're all kind of Who's doing something. Judas? Let me see. I knew you were going to ask that. Seems like an Aries. I had it. I felt it in my chest. <laughs> I knew you were going to go for Judas. <laughs> not Paul, not Peter, not, no. one of, not Matthew, not one of the regulars. Yeah. You want Judas. Who's Judas? It's very like you, Jacob. Is it? Want to know who the traitor is? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, so Judas represents Scorpio, the sign mm. of death and transformation. Mm. Okay. Which checks out because death and transformation and he betrayed Jesus and then he died <laughs> so yeah um, and I do believe that Jesus was a real person who walked the earth so some contemporary astrologers have worked out Jesus's birth chart turns out this guy was a triple Pisces Oh. and if you don't know the sign of Pisces is commonly represented as a fish mm-hmm and if you know those little like Jesus fish, fish, fishes, fishies that you fish? see everywhere. <laughs> fishies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's. A... And also the story of seven loaves or two loaves, seven fishes, something like that. Yeah. I think probably. it's just fish, right? Well, no, there's bread. There's bread involved. No, but I think it's. The plural of oh, fish. fish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The plural of fish is fish. Yeah. Or fishes. I think that's also accurate. And based on. So everyone has a birth chart, right? Which is where the sun and the stars and all the planets were at the exact moment you were born. And if you believe in that kind of thing, that kind of will say, oh, if you're an Aries, maybe you're going to be more like aggressively dominant in certain situations. Um, That's kind of like a big misconception. I don't, maybe true, but... um, Pretty sure I'm a triple Virgo. A triple Virgo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That All explains the way down a lot. Virgo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I don't know how to take that. I'm going to be thinking about that one tonight. <laughs> yeah. But, so a lot of the stuff in Jesus' charts would say that he was able to transform others with compulsion and that he would have great kindness, be highly developed with psychic abilities and healing powers and love of freedom and spiritual truth. So that all kind of checks out with, like, who Jesus was as it a follows. person. Yeah, it follows. In the birth of Jesus, you hear about the three wise men, right? And those are the three stars in Orion's belt. Uh, the way that they, like, rise in the east, and then there's a period of the night where you can't see them, usually. And that... I didn't know that. ...kind of goes to when the wise men were supposed to be talking to Harold or some guy. The Virgin Mary is kind of like the the sign of Virgo and Mary also means water which is the mother element of birth there's like in the beginning God divided the waters to make heaven and earth there's Moses's Red Sea crossing and then on December 25th uh, Virgo ascends above the horizon and the ascension is looked upon as like a fortuitous direction Hmm. Even the manger has significance. This is pointing towards the house of Capricorn, which is in December, where Jesus was born. That makes sense. Yeah, the preceding Capricorn is Sagittarius, half man, half horse, so it's like, Mm -hmm. that all checks out. How does a half man, half horse work? You you can't think about it too hard. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I know a centaur, but does that relate to the story? 
Let's just let that's like the signs. That's how it's symbolized. I oh, guess. that's like the sign of the. I got it. I'm following. I'm with it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something like okay, so Jesus was born in Pisces. Then as it transitions, then he becomes like leader of the flock. Mm. And then there's mentions of like lions in the Bible, and right. lions are Leo. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And then I'm also going to talk about some Bible verses that mention astrology that I find found kind of interesting. So Genesis 1, 14, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament. Is that how you say that? Of the heaven <laughs> to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So that's talking about, like, let them be signs and season signs. That mm-hmm. I, I, I can see, I can see the the correlation there for sure. The firmament is like so, the idea that there's like this layer of like where all the stars live, and that just goes around us like a screen. I've always loved that idea. Oh, that's it. That is interesting. It's very interesting. And then there's another verse in Isaiah forty twenty six. Um, the heavens are for his glory, and they are there to teach us. It is wonderful that there is a reason for all of these things we see. God has said so. Remember that he named each star in spite of their vast number. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and that would relate to naming each star as in, like, what star has what sign and, and how it And if you practice with astrology, kind of the point of it is to get guidelines and help you find your deeper purpose in life. and For them to also pretty pointedly say like hey listen these all have meaning because our creator took the time to name each and every single one of them even though there's tons of them that's pretty profound right you you yeah. would almost think that they would be like pay no attention to the messages from the stars for you know they are there to trick you instead they're saying like hey these are foretelling things that are happening and they're there for a reason right why else would you give something a name if it wasn't have any relevance kind of sad that we got away from that. I am too, because I think that there was a way for maybe it all to work together, because in my mind it all does. Right. Mm-hmm. But I like to think of most of the crazy stories in the Bible as just being more metaphorical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that guy that got eaten by a whale for a few days. There, That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's just, you know, I don't believe in miracles in that sense, or the Red Sea splitting. That was just a tsunami. You know, you right. can, like, look back on all these events. You can look in the soil and see evidence. There was a tsunami at the time where this would have been. That makes logical sense. They didn't have the time to, or the the knowledge to put a word on that, mm-hmm. but we can put a word on that now. Well, I think, you know, that's kind of, like, we like we all have kind of touched on today. Like, there's this these previous ideas that people still cling to that are based in, you know, centuries, centuries old information. Whereas, like, now we're entering that age where we have the science, we have the technology to go in and correlate actual reason with these events. You know, I've always liked to think, who said these people are lying? You know, maybe they're not lying. Maybe this stuff actually existed, but we just can't prove it, right? You know, like, whales are known to be much larger back then compared to now. Who's to say there wasn't a whale that could swallow a person? Now, whether they would live through it, that's a whole other thing because you have acids and bile and all this other stuff, right? But who's to say that they didn't see someone swallowed by a whale 
and then years later saw someone that looked That's a size super of God. <laughs> right, right. And like like you said, without having that knowledge or you know a different perspective, it's very intriguing, mm-hmm. you know, because it does correlate. There's so many things that tie together after a while. And then you could, I just in my head, like back then, they were living by the stars or whatever, mm-hmm. and they make up these little stories, and the stories get written down, and then then you have the Bible, and then how literal do you take that? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, how literal do you take any historical writing, you know, because it's all one of my favorite things about history is you have to read between the lines and you have to know who's writing it because history is written from the perspective of that person, not for the actual facts. Right. There is factual information, but how someone interprets a speech is going to be wildly different than how someone else interprets a speech. Right. So that's uh, that's why history is so fascinating to me. Yeah, I find that really interesting. All of it, in, in the end, it seems like if you look hard enough, whether, despite the religion or the, the area of the world, that we're just seeing these recurring themes of, at the end of the day, it seems like it's all put around us. We just need to look for it mm-hmm. and make our own, make sense of it for ourselves. And I think if, you know, if, if you do find power in, in one person's teaching, being able to read that, but then also that insistence of like make it real for yourself like go figure out if that is how you believe because i i always find it ironic that christians will claim that miracles are possible but only if you are like in this elite one percent otherwise they're kind of mm-hmm. just out of the equation which to me never made sense because I, I would feel like if that stuff is here you know it should be possible to use that somehow so yeah, I think you can't pick and choose, and you just got to mm-hmm. figure out what works for you and what doesn't. But it's it was really interesting that each of our topics seemed to uh, seem to prevail just one particular school of thought. They kind of uh, touch multiple different realms in that. Well, I think it was a fantastic episode, everyone. We hope you you equally enjoyed it, our listeners and uh, society members. Um, again, go check out our website, thecellardoorsociety.com, our Instagram. Um, check us out on YouTube, and uh, we'll uh, catch you out next time. This is Jacob. I'm James. The Instagram is The Cellar Door Society. I'm Ash. And we are signing out. Bye. Bye.